welcome to this week's sermon from Amblecote Community Church. Turn with me to John chapter 8. And we're going to read some words that this Jesus that we've been singing about said. And, uh, and we're going to basically look at what that means for our lives and what that means for those of us uh, who follow Jesus and what it also means for those that maybe um, are making a choice about whether they want to follow Jesus and whether that's part of your story. John chapter 8 verse 12 says this, Again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came, uh, come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. I said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him, because his hour had not yet come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, this very special collection of books that we've received in our time that speak a testimony about who you are, Lord, and we can learn um, about you. We can learn uh, what you did, but as Liz rightly said at the start, we can also come to know you in the words uh, of your scripture. We receive your word now. My prayer is that every person in this place, including myself, that our hearts would be open, that this word would land on good soil and that we would bear great fruit for your kingdom because it's much needed in our world. We thank you. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be, um, uh, it's uh, according to, um, we had this debate in elders the other day about when the uh, start of the year is. According to Tim Murray, everything works on an academic calendar, so this is the new year. According to Adrian, it's January. So we took a large part of our meeting. No, we didn't really. So um, this is our second new year of the year in September. We're going to kick off a new series uh, that we're calling I Am, and we're going to go through uh, some of the seven statements that Jesus makes um, about who he is. And I think we've got them. Yeah, they're there. Uh, so he says, um, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way and the truth and the life, I am the vine. And these seven statements are intended by Jesus and included by John, who wrote this gospel, uh, to reveal who Jesus is and to encourage those uh, who read it and hear it to believe in him and therefore have real life, authentic life, proper life, genuine life. That is the intention of 
um, the writer and also the intention of Jesus. And we know this is John's intention uh, because he states it. In John 20, verse 30 to 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. So Jesus did loads of stuff that you don't know about. He did loads of things. And they're not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would change everything, and that by believing you may have the life that is in his name. Now there's some debate about... um, who the John is that we've received in tradition as the writer of this gospel. Um, Some would say it's John, the son of Zebedee, who is one of Jesus' disciples, an eyewitness account of the things that were seen. Some say there's another John called John the Elder. Maybe it was him or maybe it was a completely different John. Uh, I think the evidence generally points towards it being a disciple, an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus, which is really exciting. Uh, But although there's sort of some debate there, there's no debate over the intention. Why this is written? Why was it written? Why are these things recorded uh, for the reader and then ultimately for you and for me? He writes it so that the reader or the listener at that time or you and me uh, would believe that we may believe that Jesus is who John believes Jesus is. And therefore, by believing in him, we'd have this life. And I think it's really refreshing for someone just to declare their intention. Don't you think? In our day, oh, that's, you know, communication is so, you know, what, do you, what are you really saying? We, we can't really trust the media nowadays. Politicians are all over the place. People say one thing, mean another, have secret messages that they're trying to get through. So what are you actually saying? And John is straight up honest with you and with me and says, hey, this is why I'm, reading, this is why I'm writing this. This is why this is recorded. That you might believe, and that by believing, you would have um, this life. That's the intention. And John is clear in this, that he believes that Jesus is the full and complete um, disclosure or revelation or revealing of who God is. So he's clear that Jesus is not just a prophet, although clearly he is a prophet, but not just a prophet, that he's not just a good man, a great man, although clearly he was a great man. He's not a, uh, just a revolutionary leader, although he did revolutionary things. All of those things are clear, clear and true about him. But John is actually saying, no, 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 don't get the wrong impression here. Let me be really clear with you right up front in your face. My intention is that you would see Jesus as the full and only revelation of God himself. That's why he's writing. And of course, that agrees, doesn't it, with Paul's view? In Colossians, Paul writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so these I am statements that we're going to look at over the coming weeks really are Jesus' way of sort of saying, hey, this is who I am. This is who um, I want you to see who I am, to catch a bit of who I am. And that's why he uses these crazy words, I am. And um, these words, I am, are a huge part of the reason that Jesus creates a big stir in his day. Um, Part of the reason that he ends up getting killed. 
I think Jesus could have done some great miracles and gone on and been, you know, a well-received miracle worker. He could have done some great teaching and been a great holy man that everybody loved and celebrated. But actually, Jesus went much further than that, way farther than that. And that's why the idea that Jesus was a sort of wise and good man who lived an, a, you know, an incredible life, but then over time, uh, I don't know if you've heard this sort of said by um, certain people, but you know, over time people added in the miracles and they added in the stuff about him being God and they added all these things over time. That's just historically really poor. It's really clear that the people who lived, certain people who lived at the time of Jesus did genuinely believe he was God. They believed that then, then and there. And that doesn't mean that you've got to believe him. You might decide, I don't think he is. And that's your choice. But they did. And what you have to do is decide what you're going to do with that testimony. Were they just mad? Were they crazy? Or was there something in the words of Jesus? And we all have to do something with that because we have this incredible book that's come to us. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to live in response to it? So, the idea of God being I am is a theme through the Old Testament. It begins in Exodus 3, verse 14. Some of you will know that story really well if you've been around church for a long time. Some of you might have seen it on Prince of Egypt, great film, or Exodus, Kings, and uh, I don't know if it's in that film, actually. Does he see the burning brush in that film? It's been a long time. Is he not? No, no burning bush. Okay. So, Prince of Egypt, stick with that one. Some great songs. Uh, so Moses meets God in a, a bush. Uh, Moses, um, you'll know the story, I'm sure many of you, he's grown up, he's an Israelite. Israelites are oppressed. He uh, gets saved and adopted into Pharaoh's kind of wider family. Uh, he then um, grows up, um, runs away because he kills someone, runs away, and then he's out in, in the Midian for a while. And then he's walking across and he sees this bush and it's on fire, which I think was fairly common in those sort of places, but it's not burning. That's the thing. It's something common, but there's something not quite right about it. And he sees this bush and he goes over and God speaks to him. And God basically says, you now uh, need to go uh, back to Egypt, go to Pharaoh and tell him to set my people free. Let them go. And if you think about it, Pharaoh at this point is probably uh, the, the most powerful person in the entire world. Uh, and he's also an adopted cousin of Moses. Uh, and I don't know which is scarier, challenging the most powerful person in the world or challenging your family. I'll leave you to make that decision. But um, he has to do this. He, well, he doesn't have to, but that's what God calls him to do. And Moses says this. He says, yeah, I'm going to go, but... Who do I say has sent me? Who sent me? Uh, really, what's your name? I can't just say, you know, someone told me to do this. Who, who are you? And God says, um, I am who I am. It's a great response, isn't it? It's genius, isn't it? I am who I am. I exist. I am. I will be. I, am, I will be is another way of saying that. So God's existence depends on nothing else except himself. I am. I just am. 
Uh, and there was a thing in that time where if you sort of had the name of the God, you had a little bit of power over the God, you had some control, you could invoke that name and sort of use it to your own advantages. And God has none of that. He just says, look, I am. I just am. I exist. And so Moses goes to um, the people and he says, he doesn't say, I am sent me, because that would be weird, because it would be him. He says, he will be, he, he will be sent me, if you like, or he is sent me. Uh, and the word they use for that uh, in the Hebrew is what then became developed into the word Yahweh. Yahweh. And that's what, you know, we sing Yahweh. I do think sometimes, you know, you think it's a bit mad, isn't it, if you walk in and we're all singing Yahweh. What's that about? That's what it is. We're singing, I am. He is. God is. And that's how... Um, the people of Israel, they had different names at different times. And, uh, but a main theme is that God is. He just is. And that became a strong theme through the Old Testament. So I want you to imagine that is the world you live in. This is the God you worship. It's so holy, this name, that actually you can't say the word. You don't say it. Uh, you certainly don't write it down. You have to use different letters and things like that. This holy name, this is, like we've been singing, the cherubim are worshipping and we're worshipping. Holy, holy, I am. That's the, your world. And then this guy turns up that you probably knew or someone you know may have known or that you at least know grew up in this weird northern town that doesn't really follow God anyway and he says these words truly truly I say to you before Abraham was I am yeah now people picked up stones to kill him at that point that's how serious this is hang on what are you claiming here if a man or a woman says, I am, then what they're doing is basically saying, I am this holy God that you, you can't even go into the presence of. You know, only one person once a year with all of these sacrifices can go anywhere near. He's saying, oh, I am. I am. And Jesus makes that claim a number of times. In these seven statements, he's invoking that. But also other absolute statements He's claiming to be God revealed in human form. And that's part of the reason we cannot just put Jesus as a nice person that we can sort of learn some nice fables from. It does not work because he claimed these things. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks is look at these statements. We're going to look at a few of them. We've picked different ones. Uh, we probably won't get through them all. Uh, and our intention, let me be really clear with our intention, just like John. I'll be honest with you now. My intention, our intention in teaching this is that you would believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. That you would believe that he's the Christ. That you would believe he's the Messiah. That you would believe that he's the Son of God. And therefore, by believing that, you would gain authentic, real life. Is that okay? Lovely. So, hands up who loves the dark. Who loves the dark? Great, fantastic. I thought of you, Dave, when I was going to do that example. I thought if Dave's here, he will definitely say yes. Some of us, probably in a safe and protected world, love the dark. Um, but what's interesting, I think we had four hands out of all of us here um, say they like the dark. Because the dark, very often, is scary. It's, it brings fear. And... 
often it's a symbol as well, isn't it, of uncertainty, of chaos, of the unknown. Uh, I want you to imagine that you're in a place on your own where you don't know the surroundings, you don't know the people, you don't know what's going on, and then suddenly the lights completely go out and it's completely black. That's a terrifying place to be, isn't it? Children speak of being scared of the dark. And we say to them, don't we? And I've done this, you know, don't be silly. You don't need to be scared of the dark. It's logical, you know, they have very little power, very little resources. They should be scared of the dark, really. It's a terrifying thing. Imagine uh, when you have an anxious night. I don't know if you ever have these, if you're ill or you're just battling with anxiety and you're going through the night, you're desperate for the dawn to come out, for that light to break in through the night, to break into the darkness. And for me, personally, I don't mind the dark. I think I'd, I might not be where Dave is, but I'm partway along that. But we've recently moved to Living Springs. Some of you will know that. And we're a little bit out in the country, aren't we? We're sort of a bit further out than we are. And uh, I went out on, on one of the nights to clear away some toys that were all left out about 12 o'clock at night. And suddenly I thought, oh, I am a bit scared of the dark, actually. The trees start to look like faces. The, the fence panels look a bit odd. You're thinking, who's over there? And quickly get it away and get in, you know what I mean? So it is a horrible thing. And it's often been, you know, if you think about before we had lights and before we had electricity and as humankind kind of um, developed and developed, it was a terrifying thing to be in the dark. And that is the case in the Old Testament. Darkness is uh, a scary thing and it's used as a symbol as well for chaos, for uncertainty, for fear, for confusion, for all those kinds of things. It contrasts really the light of God with the darkness of chaos and uncertainty and evil. And it's into that backdrop that Jesus says the words that we read at the start. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And what's interesting here is this passage comes a little bit after um, a part where it talks about Jesus being in the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles is um, one of the big main festivals that the Israelite people had. Uh, it's one of the three main ones. And it was one of the festivals where at least every male would make the journey. Once they were established in Jerusalem, they would make the journey into Jerusalem. Um, others would go as well, but at least the males would need, have to go. And what they would do there is they would build um, booths or tabernacles or tents, places to stay. And they would live in those places throughout the festival, and they would do certain things throughout the festival, celebrations, recognition, things like that. Uh, it's part of their culture, and it's part of reminding them of the journey that their people took through the wilderness, because they lived in tents, yeah? And um, it would remind them that um, they needed to put their hope and their trust in God, because once they get their own land, they get cocky, we all do it, and they start to think, actually, we're all right without God, we can manage on our own. Uh, and God says, no, you need to do this festival so that you remember, so that you don't go off and do your own thing and cause uh, curses and damage and stuff to come on your life. I want you to have a good life, so do these things, remember these things. And the Feast of Tabernacles was one of those things. And as part of that festival, um, at Jesus' time, what they would do is they would light some massive lamps. Now, some people reckon that these could be like 75 feet tall lamps, yeah, so like six stories. And they would have oil in it, and they would light it and set it on fire, and it would be a big, massive light. 
And the light from that would go all around the temple. Uh, and then it, um, some sources say out into the whole of Jerusalem, which I think is a bit of an exaggeration. But it would go out and shed light on this place. And they would dance and they would sing and they would celebrate about God. And actually, it would get a bit ruckus at times. And, you know, you always think ancient people behaved well, don't you? But they would do some dodgy things. And the Pharisees would say, hey, that's not what this festival's about. Come on, you know, we need to celebrate God. Uh, and they would do that. And what they would be celebrating is that actually in the wilderness, they were in a place of darkness. They'd come out of slavery and they go out. If you're in the wilderness, it's dark. Is that obvious? It's dark. It's really dark. And actually, how do you know where to go? Where do you go? And what God did is he appeared, some of you all know, as a cloud in the day and as a pillar of fire at night, a fire that would guide them on their way and say, now go this way, now go that way, you know, set up camp, break up camp, move to here. And that's what God did. He literally led them like a supernatural hand just guiding this people group through the wilderness. So they would be celebrating this as they did that, that they're a people that have a God that loves them so much that he would lead them by the hand, by that he would give them the light that they needed to go. They would say, you know, be celebrating scriptures such as Psalm 44. I think we've got, maybe we've got it on here. Uh, for, yeah, for by your own, uh, but by their own sword, they did not possess the land and their own arm did not save them. In other words, it wasn't down to them that they did this. But your right hand, God's right hand and God's arm and the light of your presence for you favoured them. They're saying, God, we recognise that we didn't get ourselves here. It was your light. It was your hand. It was your presence that brought us here. David says, doesn't he, in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Micah says in chapter 7, though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. And so they're dancing, they're celebrating, they're singing, they're reminding themselves that it's not down to their own ability that they have got to where they are today, but they have the light of God in their life. But what's interesting is these festivals weren't only looking backwards. They were about looking forwards as well. Because the people of God believed that, yes, in one sense, God had brought them into this place, but actually something still wasn't quite right. The, the kingdom of David, which was sort of the, the high point, hasn't quite, you know, the, the kings hadn't been faithful. They'd gone into exile. They'd been brought back. They'd built a temple, but the temple wasn't quite as good as the old temple. Um, Herod had rebuilt the temple and made it all lovely, but he's a nightmare. So what does that mean? So they're all a bit confused. And on top of that, they're oppressed by the Romans. And so they're not only saying, God, you led us by your light out of the wilderness and we depended on you and we could trust in you and you led us and we remember that. <clears throat> they're also saying, but you're also going to bring a light that will lead us out of our current confusion, that will lead us out of our current oppression. And they would read, you know, Isaiah 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So it was a festival, a moment that's looking backwards, that's looking forwards. The people of God were waiting for this light, the light of God. And it's into that context, that world, that Jesus stands and he says, Hey, I am the light of the world. Mind's blown, yeah? What? I am the light of the world. 
And that's Jesus' claim. It's a claim that shocked the people, that angered the people 2,000 years ago. And it's been doing the same ever since. And it comes right through to us today to shock us and challenge us. He says, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I think Jesus could have played it much safer, if I'm honest. I think I would have played it much safer than Jesus. He could have said something like, God is the light of the world. Whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I think everyone would have said, fantastic. I love this Jesus bloke. He's great. He could have said that. That would have been fine. The Pharisees would have loved him. People would have got on with him well. God is the light of the world. Brilliant. He could have even said, Israel is the light of the world. That was part of their story. Whoever follows us will have the light of life. He could have said that. And he would have gone down a storm. Would have sold many books. Maybe had a great podcast. But he didn't. He didn't say those things. He said he didn't claim God to be the light of the world or Israel, although they, you know, God clearly is and Israel has their part to play. But his claim, a shocking, earth-shattering claim, is that he is the light of the world. And that was a big factor in the arrest, the eventual execution of Jesus. It played its part. But this is what Jesus believed. I believe he believed he was the light of the world. This is what John believed and what many people in the years that followed and many, many, many people across our globe, we've seen that. People willing to risk their very lives on the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. But we do have a slight problem. I was really interested that we were singing. So it was a great set of worship, by the way. Wow, so good. And I was really interested that we're singing so many songs of victory, weren't we? Jesus, you're victorious. Um, what's the line of beautiful name? Uh, yeah, you have no rival. We sing that, don't we? It's great. And he has no rival. You have no equal. Incredible words, you know, when we stand on the victory. The enemy is under your feet. He's under his feet. I always think when we sing these songs, which I'm declaring out because I love it, some of us are sitting there going, Really? The enemy's under his feet. Have you been out there? Have you seen the world that we live in? What are you guys on about? I think that's a fair point, isn't it? You think? Do you think that's a fair challenge to say, actually, some of us may have noticed that the world is not as light as we would want it to be. There is lots of darkness. There is lots of suffering and confusion and pain and chaos In other words, there is darkness. How can this be? If Jesus is the Son of God and he has come as the light of the world, how is there still darkness? How do you answer that? And I love this tension. This is one of my favourite tensions in the Bible because this is the tension that the Israelites lived with their whole existence. Their claim was, hey, you know, you got all your gods But you know, our God, our God actually exists. Your gods are just pretend gods. They're just spiritual beings. But our God made the whole world and he he put, you know, he did creation and he's our God. And then they'd be attacked and beaten in a war. And everyone would go, what? What are you on about? 
If your God was strong, surely you'd win all the wars. Surely you'd be ruling the world. Surely it's not you that has the gods. Surely it's the Romans. They have the gods. And what the Israelites had to do is what you and I have to do today. They had to believe that to stand in this tension of saying, God, I believe that you're there. I believe that you're holy. I believe that you're powerful. I believe that you hold everything in your hands and you made everything. But the world that I'm seeing isn't reflecting that in every moment. And they stood in that. And you know what that's called? It's faith. That's called faith. And Jesus did that. That's exactly what Jesus did. Because he went, I'm the son of God. I'm the light of the world. Hang on, you're hanging on a cross. What are you on about? Surely you'd be beating all the enemies and doing all that. Anyway, I'm getting off track. Jesus never claimed to fully and completely and wholly bring the uh, light into the world. He didn't claim that. And he says this, you can tell, because he says in verse 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So Jesus has come, but unless you believe, there's still death and there's still sin. It's still here. That's still here, guys. Sorry, I've come, but all of that's still here. And in the statement, there's a condition to this light. You see, the light has come. The day of the Lord, if you like, that the Israelites were expecting. They were waiting for God to turn up, judge the unrighteous, punish the wicked, um, re- sort them out, all the unfaithful ones, and lift them up and go, yeah, we were right all along. That's what they were waiting for. They believed that day would come. It's called the day of the Lord. But what the Christians claim was actually God did it in a two-part scheme. He brought the day of the Lord with Jesus so that in the gap between Jesus and ultimately the day of the Lord, he could offer mercy and forgiveness and freedom and light to those that want it. Isn't that beautiful? He created this gap, this massive gap. We're up to 2,000 and whatever years now, aren't we? Massive gap. Maybe it'll go on. Who knows? But there's a gap where mercy can be extended, where forgiveness can be found, where everything is not going to be dealt with exactly as we would want necessarily, or maybe we wouldn't when we look at our own lives, where he can offer forgiveness and welcome us into the kingdom. And that's the condition that Jesus says. He doesn't say, I'm the light of the world, everything's great now. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will have the light of life. That's the condition. That's the condition. The light has come. But Isaiah said, people hated the light and they preferred the darkness. The light has come. Whoever follows me will have the light of life. And what that means is that actually the light comes. So when we are singing here, which I think is brilliant, is we're celebrating that this has been done it's already it's already done when Jesus came it was all done now we live in the gap until the point where we see it will be complete and that's what that's why we can declare the enemy's under his feet of course he's under his feet Jesus has come but we're living in the gap following Jesus means being a disciple of him walking with him 
as Liz rightly said at the start, listening to him, having a relationship with him, doing what he commands, living the life that he instructs us to live. That's how we receive the light. The light has come, but that is how we live in the light. Band, I wonder if you'd come back. Is that okay? So, my time is up. I could go on. But I wonder if there's some people here who need to be reminded that Jesus is the light of the world. Many of us, just quoting Liz now, she didn't look at my notes, but many of us have found other lights that we like to live by. We live by the light of money, live by the light of popularity, and live by the light of pleasure. But I think most of us find pretty soon that those lights don't offer much hope in this dark world. And you do live by a light. Every one of you lives by some kind of light. The challenge is what light are you living by? And I know for me, with all of my failure, of which there is many, with all of my doubts, which are very frequent, I just can't get away from this sense that I think Jesus is the light. I, I, I really do. I just think he is. I don't fully understand everything. I can't cross all the T's and dot all the I's, but I believe that he is. What about you? Do you need an encouragement just to remember that he is the light and to live in the light of discipleship, learning to be like him, to walk with him, to come close to him? Is that what God is saying? Do you need to be challenged that maybe you'll focus on the light that he gives you? I'll just follow this little light over here. You're looking for other lights. And then I do wonder if there's those here that maybe have never really or maybe um, aren't living in the way where Jesus is your light. You're not living that life. And therefore, there is some sense that you're walking in darkness and you need the light. So as a band play, I want to pray for us. We, uh, we know the world is a dark place. You don't need me to tell you that. But Jesus says he's the light. And whoever follows him will have the light of life. Do you want the light of life? Is that what you want? And uh, I do want to lead those that want to do that in a bit of a prayer. We do this occasionally. So if you are saying in your heart, you know, I don't live this way, but I want to, then I will say some words and I want you just to repeat them in your head. It's just a way of making a kind of response to God. So just repeat these words as I pray them. Jesus, I recognize that I am not living by your light. I recognize that I need your light in my world, in my life. Forgive me for all my sin. Forgive me for my rebellion against you. 
even though I may not have even known I was rebelling. I choose to follow you that I may have the light of life. Amen. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Where would we be without Jesus? Fumbling around in the dark, trying to make sense of what we don't know. But we thank you that we can pin our vision on one person. And that through you, Jesus, you would lead us, take us by the hand, just like Israel. You'd hold us and lead us through the wilderness into the promised land. Pray that we'd be people that put more of our hope in you, more of our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. listening to this podcast from Amblecote Community Church. For more information about who we are, what we believe, and how you can get involved, check out our website, amblecotecc.org.uk.